0: Hello everyone, this is Rosemary Coates in Silicon Valley. I'm your host for this edition of the Frictionless Supply Chain Podcast. I'm the Executive Director of the Reshoring Institute where we help companies bring back or expand their manufacturing in the U.S. And I'm a contributing writer to Supply Chain Management Review. Today, I'm just thrilled to have my guest, Bindya Vakal, the founder and CEO of Resilink Software. Bindia is very well known here in Silicon Valley and throughout the world as a rising star in supply chain and a breakthrough thinker in supply chain management. Today, we're going to be talking about the exposure of risk in global supply chains and how to mitigate this risk through the use of software and strategic action. So Florida is in the news and for the utter destruction of communities in the wake of Hurricane Ian. Now, supply chain professionals need to know what they have to do uh, to mitigate their risk. If they have suppliers in Florida, if they have customers in Florida, what should they do to recover? What about the roads, the bridges, electricity, airports, workers? Oh, boy, there's a lot to be concerned about. Uh, But there's much more to discuss than just Florida. Uh, this kind of risk is worldwide. So let's get started and see what Bindia has to say. So welcome, Bindia. Thank you, Rosemary. It's great to be here. Let's, let's start off talking a little bit about your background because I know it's um, unique and you sort of uh, started your career here in Silicon Valley and uh, how you came up for the ranks and started Resolute.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'll. Um, I started my career um, actually in finance and por- portfolio management, so I was very well entrenched in the whole value at risk uh, mindset before I came to Silicon Valley. Worked at uh, Selectron, which is now Flextronics, a very large electronics manufacturing company. Um, I was in direct material sourcing and procurement roles um, at. In, in most of my direct materials uh, career, chasing shortages, dealing with problems. And, um, and I actually always la- uh, laugh a little bit that I cut my teeth in supply chain risk with the tantalum capacitor shortage of 2000, um, where tantalum caps, which were these little capacitors that were 0.02 cents parts that um, were used in just about every high-tech product you could imagine. And there was a 12-month lead time on those that ended up causing the dot-com crash. And, you know, when you're at Selectron, you're at ground zero, right? So that's where demand came crashing down one day. And we were basically spending the next few years learning how little things can have massive consequences in supply chain. So then when I went to Cisco and MIT to do my master's in supply chain and then Cisco, I had this amazing opportunity Um, Hurricane Katrina had just happened, as well as the first tsunami in Asia, and um, we had started a a really innovative supply chain risk management um, program at the time to really map out and understand, you know, we have 44,000 parts that are many single source, where do these actually get made around the world? And so I spent five years doing supply chain mapping, and setting up early warning and monitoring systems and capabilities. And that really transformed my way of thinking, which was we went from being very reactive when I started this journey in supply chain to being able to anticipate where the next disruption might come from in the next few months. And the difference was data, mapping the supply chain and early warnings. And so I started ResLink in 2010 Because I said, then risk is a data problem. If every company could put this type of a unique and collaborative program together, working with suppliers, um, then this could be transformational. People could save jobs, livelihoods, and our life itself is made possible by the supply chain. So that's what we've been doing for the last 12 years.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. So um, it's good to know that you started out thinking about risk with the last big hurricane, Katrina, right? Um, And it's been sort of a wake-up call for a lot of supply chain people. I think, um, as you were saying, most companies are still reactive. They're not planning very well. And this has been a huge wake-up call. I think the pandemic and what's happened in Florida is a huge wake-up call for supply chain people that – we really need to start thinking differently um, uh, uh, about supply chains. So, uh, how how should we begin? I mean, how do we start thinking about our uh, our mapping our supply chain and where the risk exists?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I want to just quickly, Rosemary, go back to something you said, which is that this is a wake up call, and I think we all think that sometimes that this was a wake up call and that was. But actually, with all due respect, people, the last. 12 years have been full of wake-up calls. We had the tsunami in Japan. We had Iceland volcano. We had the bankruptcies of 2008. We had multiple um, hurricanes like Harvey, Irma, um, so many earthquakes and things that brought us down. In fact, the pandemic was almost, if you didn't learn between 2010, 2000 to 2020, then You were not in supply chain because every time these things happen, people said, oh, boy, we got lucky. No, we didn't. We lost an opportunity not to to, we lost an opportunity where we didn't fix our capabilities. And so I think what I see as we enter 2020 and the pandemic happened is not everybody. Slept through those wake up calls. There were, in fact, many companies who learned from the tsunami of 2011, the Thailand floods and subsequent disasters. And we know that companies like Micron, Western Digital, IBM um, and many others, Amgen and different GM and many others set up very robust supply chain mapping, monitoring multiple tiers, deep um, supplier collaboration capabilities and really the people process and change management infrastructure in place to be risk conscious, not risk free, because there's no such thing. But knowing that your supply chain is in fact going to be disrupted 100% chance, how can we not only survive, but thrive and win market share? And so the companies that took that approach in the aftermath of these disruptions we saw them perform relatively better than competition. And in fact, they came out of this um, relatively faster and did not experience the multiple billions of dollars in profit margin problems, revenue shortfalls, um, and customer losses uh that many others who did not learn from them and
0: and the and the stress on individual supply chain people too who you know all of a sudden now they have to look for alternatives and so forth can can you explain a little bit about mapping and what that means in case people aren't familiar with supply chain mapping yeah so at the very
1: foundation mapping means you know look simple thing take a car take an electronics device There are so many tiny, tiny components that go into any product that we use. Each of these is made in a different site around the world, somewhere in the world. Um, And so if you take a car apart, the parts that come into a modern car might come from 35 countries around the world. And keep in mind, every one of those parts need to be present in order for the car to be manufactured and shipped Um, and so mapping means knowing where these parts are coming from Uh, not only your direct suppliers but knowing where your supplier suppliers build their parts as well because a lot of times a supplier goes down in fact 85 percent of the time a direct supplier goes down because of something that happened to one of their suppliers Right. Mm -hmm. So mapping involves understanding those tier one manufacturing sites, um, which backup sites do they have, which parts they make, store or distribute out of these sites, and then who are their suppliers and where their sites are.
0: Right. So uh, sort Mm -hmm. of like the image behind you, a hub and spoke and understanding what all those links are in the supply chain. Right. Yeah. I had somebody tell me the other day um, we were talking about country of origin. And I asked them where they were sourcing certain electronic parts, and they said, oh, we, we buy it from the U.S. They're, they're American parts. I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> A distributor in the U.S. is not making that stuff. It's coming from all over the world, and you better be aware of where it's coming from and what the alternatives are also, Right.
1: Yeah, in fact, one thing I'll just say on that is 100% of the parts, and I mean 100% of the products that we buy today, there is at least one part that is sourced out of China um, in every product that we buy right? And, and that may not be a direct supplier, it may be a second or third tier supplier, but something as small as packaging. If you're thinking about, um, you know, medicine and pharmaceuticals, the source materials that make the API, these come from um, countries around Asia, you know, half of our global manufacturing is done by countries around Asia. And, right. and we're all vulnerable to the things that happen halfway around the world, those can really affect our ability to buy the things that we need.
0: Right, right, for sure. And we're gonna to get to some geopolitical questions in a minute, but I wanna talk a little bit about what happens once you have this map. So let's say you take one product line and you determine all of the suppliers, the uh, tier one suppliers you're buying from, the tier two that they're buying from, the tier three that they're buying from, and you have a pretty good idea of uh, where in the world all these uh, suppliers are located. And that's fine. But then, what do you do with that information in order to make it effective?
1: Exactly. So, the second part of this. Um, is the monitoring and the early warning. So here's the reality, right? Something that happened halfway around the world does not immediately affect everybody, right? Different people have different levels of dependency, inventory in the supply chain, usage, et cetera. And so monitoring gives people that early warning um, to say, hey, there was a factory fire that just happened. It got reported in the local language in Vietnamese or what have you. And then The supplier can then begin to work together with the customer users and begin the process of response and recovery. But without a mapping and monitoring capability being there, what ends up happening is we think life is fine, business as usual, until three, four weeks later, the supplier starts to push out some deliveries, cancel some peels. Now you're within your lead time window. Now you have very few options to protect yourself. So that's why the monetary... So it's
0: risk. So it's risk about those suppliers, but also how much inventory you have in the pipeline. So there has to be the complementary piece of data that's important in making decisions about what to do, right? Yes, exactly.
1: Because otherwise what happens is companies sometimes will use some heuristics, like, you know, let's just put two extra months of inventory, which is... Okay. I mean, if you have the cash to justify that or warehouse space to support that kind of buildup, and certainly you can't store inventory, two extra months inventory for everything. So within the framework of I need to be lean, I need to have operational and financial efficiencies, reduce my cost of goods sold, improve my gross margin, but yet be resilient and ensure continuity of supply, which by the way means revenue assurance um, to my financial stakeholders, I need to have mapping and monitoring capabilities that help me protect the performance risk.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, even when there is no disaster, when the supply chain looks, your whole map looks fine, looks static, quiet, and so forth, you ought to be looking at where the potential points of risk might be. So if you lose one of the nodes, uh, or you don't have an alternate supplier, or you have a really long lead time, those are all the things during the quiet times you should be focused on and determining what to do, right? Exactly. So there are two primary things that
1: companies need to do. Obviously, mapping, monitoring are the foundational capabilities. But using that data, there's the reactive or the responsive workflow, which means early detection, something happened, you're collaborating with suppliers, fixing it, recovering, but on a proactive basis, which is what what you're talking about, Rosemary, which is on an ongoing basis, what are how do you manage your suppliers? What type of metrics do you use? How do you incentivize your people? Are they incentivized on cost
0: savings? Or are you incentivizing them on yes. continuity of supply? Well, that that's a that's a big issue that I see all the yeah. time, where all these buyers around the world are, um, bonus on how much savings they created during the year instead of bonus on how strategically they're thinking about their supply base, right? And yeah. how they're mitigating risk and so forth. That's a that's a really important top level strategy issue determining what your incentives should be and can be to optimize your supply chain yeah really important yeah experience.
1: and rosemary you know and i know this which is when you're thinking about your supply chain in terms of cost savings is your your bonus target is dependent on you meeting your cost saving number you're going to segment your suppliers and say these are my top 20% of suppliers that are 80% of spend but what you're doing by doing that is you're not managing eighty percent of your suppliers, which are twenty percent of the spend, and that is where all the problems are. That is where you come down crashing. So, like I told you, the tantalum capacitor, zero point zero zero two cent part, brought the economy down. You know, right now you look at things like chrome, plastics, resins. I mean, things that would not even register on spend mm-hmm. are bringing us down. PPE. Yeah. 3% of a hospital spend, but brought yeah. us to our knees during the pandemic. But Absolutely. when you put the continuity of supply lens as a top level priority, your team is going to say, what is the stuff that will bring down revenue? different yeah. way to prioritize and now you will look at all the com- common component that are used across many platforms because if that one right now you see this huge issue at ford the ford logo plate is not available which goes on every car and because of that all the f-150s the bread and butter car
0: for ford can't be shipped so yeah so it's not the most well,
1: expensive thing
0: but huge
1: of impact
0: yeah, so so let's let's switch over to some global issues now. So even like um, NEON has been primarily sourced in Ukraine. And uh, since the war started, (laughs) there's no uh, neon coming out of the Ukraine, and neon is used to produce semiconductors. So we all know about the semiconductor shortages, right? Uh, But what is causing those are swings in demand during the pandemic, as well as shortages of the production uh, materials that are needed to actually produce them. I mean, it's it's way more complex than people make it out to be or whether what is uh, sort of stated in the headline news. Um, It's more complicated. So tell us a little bit um, before we go on to some geopolitical issues. Tell us a little bit about Resolink software and how that maps the supply chain. So we've been talking about mapping it and so forth, but it's gotta be next to impossible to do that uh, manually. You need software to help and Resilink is that solution.
1: Yeah, you know, um, why I started ResLink was because when I did this in-house within a company, we spent a lot of money. We had a huge team. We were chasing our suppliers, trying to get this data collected. What I realized was that if every customer starts asking the supplier for this type of mapping data in different tools and different platforms and formats, and I come from the supplier world, so I have lots of empathy for that community, um, the suppliers will stop responding. But by doing so, they will do a huge disservice to themselves and their customers because mapping can be transformational in revenue protection and continuity of supply. So my view is we need to make mapping possible, resource efficient, cost effective for the company as well as all the suppliers. So ResLink started as the LinkedIn for supply chain, which means if I'm a supplier, I put my mapping data in on the ResLink platform once, I can then securely manage all my customer asks in a single place without having to keep replicating the data entry every time and now with you know we we started with certain industries where the suppliers were doing this work initially for one or two customers now 12 years later the same supplier is sharing their data with 50 customers and oh. with one effort they can do the data refresh for 50 now not only that rosemary when we have an event that happens let's say I'll stick with my Vietnam example, flood in Vietnam, an alert goes out in the local language, our AI picks it up, we alert our customers saying, hey, you have five suppliers that make these 10 parts that are used on these 50 products that are of 500 million in revenue. The customer users log in. Simultaneously, ResLink asks the suppliers to say, are you okay, yes or no? The suppliers without having to field 50 panicky phone calls can say once I'm okay. And all their approved customers will see that this supplier is okay. So immediately the right people within the customer and the suppliers are collaborating within hours of wow. an evacuation. Now yeah, this, I is never, the, this is yeah. the execution speed that is needed.
0: Yeah, and I remember you telling me a while back about um, you first the way you first knew about the pandemic in China uh, through your software through AI and your software. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah, absolutely. We
1: actually are. What our AI does is it picks up keywords in different languages. So we monitor a hundred plus languages. So anything it's that it 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 signals to our. Um, customers, this is relevant to supply chain or not relevant to supply chain. So we have hundreds of millions of things we are monitoring. So on December 29, 2019, when we are monitoring social media, so Weibo and all the social media platforms in the US and other countries. So we picked up the local Wuhan government when they alerted the hospitals to be on the lookout of, for an unknown pattern of pneumonia. Our AI picked it up. And so we've watched the chatter grow over the next few days. And our first alert went out to our customers on January 4. Now, not only did that initial alert go out, we actually drew a huge circle around Wuhan and we said, these are your supplier sites, products and parts that are there. So by the time, January 8th, January 16th, we had started seeing more and more concerning updates come out, so the level of severity started to go up. By the time Wuhan went into lockdown, Our customers had moved all their inventory out of the entire Hubei province. And then we actually started um, assessing suppliers' pandemic readiness on January 22nd. Remember the pandemic was actually called the pandemic March 11th, so we started, (laughs) I mean, this is how supply chain should function, right? Plan for the worst case, hope for the best right? So as the cases started to get picked up in other countries like Japan, South Korea and others, we were there creating those war rooms, extracting um, what inventory was there, moving products out. So allowing our customers to stay two steps ahead of this.
0: So, so with your early warning system like that, when you're picking up some event that's starting to happen or starting to blossom, you can uh, warn your customers that they have if they've mapped their supply chain, that they have suppliers in that area, and then they're they can take action from there, either to find alternate sources, or build inventory, or move out, or whatever they're going to do. That's that's amazing, because so many so many of my clients are were stuck with no inventory, they couldn't get inventory. It is, anywhere in the world and because the factories were all shut down across China. So had they had that early warning signal, uh, it would have made a world of difference in, in their own productions. That's, that's just amazing, amazing. And with the use of AI and multiple languages uh, looking at um, what is being fed to the, in, in like Twitter feeds and Weibo and, you know, some of the big platforms that's um so incredibly helpful to get advanced warning signals for sure. So it's kind of like a, when a hurricane is coming and you get a advanced warning, you know, leave the area, move out, right? Yeah. There are, there are two, you else. know, there are two approaches,
1: right, Rosemary? One approach is, let's watch this hurricane make landfall. We'll see how bad it is. And then we'll figure out what to do. You've already lost the game. If you're in that camp, you've already lost the game, because guess what? My customers, before hurricane season even starts, we have a hurricane simulator where we we model 12 years of hurricane landfall area, overlay that on top of all the mapping data. And customers can see before hurricane season starts, I have these sites that are most at risk because they have parts coming from these sites that are high impact single source and the last few hurricanes the supplier confirmed that they were impacted and um and we don't have a strong BCP the backup power is not there so this is the set of suppliers we need to move inventory out of region but all that happens in May and June not
0: after land not in October yeah in October. right. And it's just fantastic. I, I just think the whole idea of using artificial intelli- intelligence and looking at the whole world and is su- such a clear breakthrough idea for supply chain management. It's just really interesting. So let's turn to the world. Um, next week is the 20th Party Congress in China, where Xi Jinping is likely to be Uh, re-elected for uh, another long-term in office, Um, and of course, those geopolitical uh, situations are very volatile right now across Asia, uh, not only with, with China and the Taiwan Straits, but also now with North Korea, again, very active with their nuclear program. So how does that affect how we should look at supply chains? I mean, what should we do about the geopolitical situation worldwide, including that war in Ukraine as well, of course?
1: Yeah, um, it, we are definitely seeing the world shift into almost a re-globalization, if you will, where we are seeing the globalized world with China as the single point of failure or for manufacturing or Taiwan as the uh, single point of failure for all things silicon. That world is ended, right? We are seeing the supply chain is in motion. And I mean, literally pun is intended. The supply chain itself is moving right now because more and more companies we're seeing are, if not moving their primary site, at least having backup site availability using either a subcontractor or a contract manufacturer in different regions as a way to build resiliency. By the way, this is past due. We needed this to what, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, yeah. right? We've been preaching this for many, many years that we need to have a regionalization strategy and we can't put all of our eggs in any one basket, whether it's China or Taiwan or any other. It's just not the right approach. And Taiwan in particular, You know, with I said this when I started mapping the supply chain, the very first supply chain map that I saw for semiconductor um, came out. I I said this in 2013. If something happens to Taiwan, life as we know it will end for a period of time. Right. right? But it's also the case for China. Because I mean, much as our leaders may want, China is in the supply chain, in all those small items that we are not mapping or watching closely because we are too focused on spend. Nobody wants smelters in their backyard. China smelts everything that goes into all of our products directly or through a supplier, which is why I think it's really important for us to really understand before we the, the level of rhetoric, the way we're, you know, running the geopolitics, the politics of the day, I think we're kind of doing it without proper information about exactly what is really at risk. Yeah, I think,
0: you know, yeah. in, in over the years of 40 years, I've been in supply chain management. I've seen a, a shift, especially in the last maybe 10 years or so, from just moving boxes around the world to moving information. And then now I think supply chain people have gotten a whole lot smarter about the strategy so instead of just thinking about the day-to-day operations which you know you have to keep moving and and keep going you also need to be thinking about your global strategy your global supply chain strategy and alternatives and where in the world and do you have china plus one or you know all these things are very very different kind of topics from when i started when i was just worried about you know getting the boxes off the dock at the end of the day right And these days it's, you know, it's a whole different kind of uh, world and more sophisticated and complicated and takes a lot more brain power, a lot more software power for sure. Um, the, the bad
1: news is we're living in unprecedented and disruptive times. The good news is we have access to unprecedented data and technology. The question is just will we adopt it fast enough to really make a difference? And so I think we're in our own way to be candid um, where we can make a difference. I feel like we're not adopting technology fast enough. We're too risk averse, rethinking, analyzing, triple analyzing everything instead of putting a stake in the ground and saying, yep, this makes sense, let's go, right? So we're still seeing that hesitation. That is one thing. The second thing I will say, Rosemary, is that we see the world, as I said, right? We are regionalizing. Um, We wrote about this in Harvard Business Review last year about the Pan-American manufacturing ecosystem. If there was ever a time to reach out to our neighbors in Central and South America, it is now um, to have a different kind of trade arrangement. We can bypass ports. We can bypass single points of failure like the Panama Canal um, and and set up a really good, solid and thriving hub for manufacturing right in our backyard.
0: Yeah, I think that's the new buzzword, uh, friendshoring, right? So having uh a Uh, supply chains move through friendly nations and hopefully those that are closer. So nearshoring, reshoring, friendshoring. Yeah, yeah, really uh, near and dear to my heart, too, for sure.
1: And and I think the the other thing is Africa, which I think is not even in the conversation, unfortunately. But really, when we look at the world and we map down, even China buys its stuff. From Africa. So I think that we need to look at Africa very strategically. It is the center of the world when it comes to supply chain. And right now, the way the supply chain is structured is we we extract out of Africa, ship it all east, manufacture it, and then ship it back west. When here's Africa with a record, um, with the only growing population in the world, you know, thriving natural resources, including all the mining minerals and all that that we need. Average age of 18 is the population, and the population is, is like I said, perfect for the manufacturing sector. I think the manufacturing world procurement needs to look very strategically at Africa. By the way, China is 10 years ahead of us there. So,
0: Yes. Yeah, it's kind of surprising when you travel the world and all of a sudden you see chinese letters on buildings and you know in the heart of mexico or and all over south america and yeah you know they're they're way ahead of us in terms of strategic thinking regarding supply chain we definitely need to catch up and start getting smarter and and i think the
1: the problems with africa that the US or the West in general sees, right? Which is, oh, lack of infrastructure, geopolitical unrest. I think what China has actually shown is despite that, they have gone in and built infrastructure and actually they have laid the foundation for us to actually go in and rethink how we look at this region.
0: Yes, yes, right, you're absolutely right.
1: So Bindya, any closing thoughts as we wrap it up here? You know, I think that a lot of people right now are looking to take some shortcuts when it comes to supply chain mapping. Uh, there's a lot of talk about how AI is the answer for all things mapping and we're just going to get all this data about all our suppliers and everything from public domain. And I can tell you that people do not put their secret sauce in public domain. So be really careful, you know, who you are buying what from and really be thoughtful. You cannot do your supply chain mapping without collaborating with your suppliers because Coke does not put its formula online for everyone to they look at. Just like that, no company I've ever worked at uh, discloses all their suppliers and sub-tier suppliers and part compositions right. and bombs in public domain. So I just want to say, you know, there's a right way to do supply chain mapping and a wrong way to do supply chain mapping. Just be careful. You don't spend a lot of time and money and get a bunch of data that is completely useless two years later. So, you know, work with working with suppliers and doing mapping collaboratively is really the best approach because that not only gives you the the data that you need for your business, but it sets up an ongoing connection for event monitoring and response and um, problem solving that
0: you would not get without that. Very good advice. Thank you. So thank you so much for joining us today, Bindia. It was really interesting, as always, to talk to you. Can you please give us your contact information if uh, customers or uh, listeners want to learn more about Resolink or um, how do they get in touch with you? Absolutely. So our website is Resilink.com,
1: R-E-S-I-L-I-N-C, Resilink.com. My email is Bindia at Resilink.com, B-I-N-D-I-Y-A, Bindia at Resilink.com please visit our website or actually connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm surprisingly active on social media. <laughs> so
0: okay. Yeah. And I think uh, one other thing I would mention is that you put on a lot of wrestling puts on a lot of um, webinars and information that are just fascinating. Um, and so that's a, another way that potential listeners can sign up and, and listen to this, this um, in- incredibly interesting information about the future. So you you can listen to more supply chain, uh, frictionless supply chain podcasts uh, posted on Supply Chain Management Reviews landing page, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can reach me, Rosemary Coates, at R-C-O-A-T-E-S at reshoringinstitute.org. Or visit our website, www.reshoringinstitute.org, where we publish all of our research on manufacturing in America. Thanks so much and have a great day, everyone.